to Zealots at the Gate, a podcast of Common Magazine in which we explore deep religious and political difference. I'm Shadi Hamid, and with me is my friend and co-host, Matthew Kamink. Together, we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at the Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life at Fuller Seminary. The cool thing is that we are writing a book together, and this podcast represents an informal space where we can work out our ideas disagree, agree, and talk about how to live with deep difference. Over our time together, we'll also be pulling in a number of expert voices on religion and politics to inform our discussion. And since this is episode number two, uh, please feel free to spread the word. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen, and please leave us a review on... um, Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use, five stars is preferable, but it's really up to you. (laughs) And the cool thing is that there's a hashtag on Twitter, too, if you want to ask Matt or I a question about what we've talked about or anything that's on your mind regarding religion, politics, and difference, you can do that at the hashtag ZealotsPod, ZealotsPod, or email us at zealots at comment.org. And we will be taking a look at those emails. Okay, yeah. Yeah, man. So I, so, I mean, the basics here is Shadi's a Muslim, I'm a Christian. Shadi's a liberal, I'm a conservative. I'm white, he's, he's not. I don't know what color you prefer, what your color identity is. but Brownish. You know. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So I study, po- I study political theology. He studies political science. So, you know, our, our identity markers really indicate that Shetty and I shouldn't be friends. Uh, we shouldn't be colleagues, and, and yet we are. And here in this podcast space is really where we are wrestling with these issues of religion, politics, uh, and the future of democracy. And so we're going to hit a different topic each week. And this week, Shetty, I wanted to tackle the issue of political certainty uh, political certainty and political doubt. Um, it seems to me that uh, democracy is struggling a bit from uh, an oversupply of certainty. That uh, our democratic life is filled with people who are quite sure of themselves. And of course, it goes without saying that Muslims and Christians are typically framed as being too sure of themselves as being dogmatic. Um, That that sort of label is often applied to Muslims and Christians is that uh, religious people are too dogmatic, too certain of themselves. And of course, that's that's absolutely true. But I have this quote that has stuck with me from the uh, political philosopher Slavo Žižek. And Žižek is our favorite. Isn't that a great name? I wish wish my (laughs) name... Anything's better than K-Mink, but Zizek is pretty good. Uh, But Zizek here talks about fundamentalism as something that afflicts not simply religious people, uh, but secular people as well. A sort of certainty down to the ground that you are absolutely right and they are absolutely wrong. Um, And he sort of rejects this understanding that only religious people can be fundamentalists that in fact, secular people can be as well. So here's the quote. And I, I think Shadi, that this will sort of open up a good discussion for us about how we think about 
the politics of certainty or what we might call the gift of doubt. So here's what he says. He says, who in fact are the fundamentalists? To put it simply, a fundamentalist does not believe in something, but rather knows it directly. In other words, both liberal and skeptical cynicism and religious fundamentalism share a basic underlying feature, the loss of the ability to believe in the proper sense of the term. For the secular and the religious fundamentalist, statements are quasi-empirical statements of direct knowledge. Fundamentalists accept these statements as such while skeptics mock them. What is unthinkable for the fundamentalist is the absurd act of a decision which installs every authentic belief a decision that cannot be grounded in a chain of reason and positive knowledge. So essentially what it is, is he's saying here is that certainty does not take uh, much effort. It's belief. It's this understanding that I don't know things directly. I believe in them. And so it's always mediated by something. The fundamentalist yeah. knows it directly and that's what makes it dangerous. And uh, so anyways, I wanted to turn it over to, Sh to you, Shadi, and ask you, um, when you look back at your own Muslim tradition, how do you think about these issues of certainty and doubt within um, your own political imagination? Yeah, sure. And just like a little side note about Zizek, he's an interesting character. Well, he did endorse Trump in 2016, but I think that's mostly because he was bored. <laughs> but the other interesting thing is that there's this famous clip and we'll try to include it in, in the show notes, but it's basically a video of G Jack walking on the street in some city and he manages to stuff two hot dogs in his mouth in rapid succession in the matter of 10 seconds. And he's walking while he's stuffing the hot dogs. And yeah, so I mean, he is quite a, he is quite a colorful character. Okay, to more important issues. So there is this story, there's this, um, there's this incident in Islamic history in the beginning that I find absolutely fascinating, and it's something that I regularly go back to. First of all, it's a wonderful little story, but there's also a very important lesson there. So some of our listeners might be aware of, uh, of Ali, the Prophet's... Um, son-in-law, who was the fourth and last of the righteously guided caliphs in the early period of Islam. So um, basically, Ali got himself into a bit of a pickle because he was fighting. There was a conflict with another group of Muslims who wanted to take power, and there wasn't an obvious way to resolve this. So Ali agreed to submit to an arbitration between him and his opponent. The arbitration process begins, but then some of Ali's followers are outraged and they basically get pretty angry at Ali and they say, how could you have gone against God's sovereignty? How could you submit yourself to the rule of mere men, of mere mortals? And this became one of the early incidents of schism, let's say, in Islam, because of this disagreement about who is ultimately sovereign. So upon hearing this accusation, Ali 
calls upon his followers to gather around, and he brings a large copy of the Quran, and then he touches the Quran and he says, O Quran, speak to the people. And then there's silence, and people are just not sure what's going on. They start grumbling. And so they say, O Ali, why do you mock us so? The Quran cannot speak for itself. And then Ali says, that's precisely the point. He says, the Quran is written in straight lines between two covers. It is but ink. It does not speak for itself. And this, I think, is really important because there's a lesson that Ali is imparting to his supporters is this idea that anyone in particular can speak for God on behalf of God always has to be problematized. So, you know, we as Muslims, we believe that every every single letter and word of the Quran isn't just a word of God, but God's actual speech. In other words, no human mediation. Prophet Muhammad didn't write or speak parts of it. So it is... so. But even if you have something that is God's exact speech, once we as humans either read the Quran or listen to God's speech through recitation, there's immediately going to be a subjective element introduced. Because we as humans in all of our imperfection, we are perceiving and it's being, it's being sort of channeled through us. And that's where human mind, human subjectivity, and our own biases and whims come into play. We don't have direct access to God's intent. Um, we don't know exactly what God wanted with a particular verse. Um, we can strive to find out, but there's always going to be this sense of a gap between the perfection of God that is beyond us, and when it comes down to us, comes down to earth, and enters into the realm of human imperfection. The Quran does not speak for itself. It needs interpreters. It needs people to speak on its behalf. And right when you acknowledge that, you acknowledge that there is uncertainty. Because once a human is saying something, there's just no guarantees that it's right. So that for me is something that, you know, each of us... Each of us can kind of look back to as Muslims and remind ourselves of this particular moment where Ali, um, you know, who who is a you know deeply respected one one of the most important figures in Islamic history because of his closeness to the Prophet, it's just a great lesson. So I'll I'll just maybe start with that. I, I like that one yeah. a lot. Yeah. So I mean, I I like this because uh, you know as a as a Christian, of course. Um, Muslims and Christians have different understandings of their holy text and different approaches, but there is a, there's a common element here in that um, it seems to me that we take great offense that um, we are participants in, in reflecting on truth. Um, and we, we want that certainty. We long for that certainty and we don't, we don't have access to that. And so um, I, I witness Christians, Muslims, um, and atheists all reaching for a level of certainty, um, access to fundamental truth that they don't have access to. And that creates a sense of anxiety, just like it, it created a sense of anxiety for those people around Ali, right? They wanted him to just say, 
here is what the will of God is. Just give it to us directly. And they were frustrated with him because he did not give them the exact will of God in that moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it, it does raise an interesting question of why so many of our fellow co-religionists don't seem to take these ideas on board, because they are, as far as I can tell, quite central to both of our traditions. But I think you're also right to point out, Matt, I mean, part of the problem we have now is that it's also secularists and atheists and pretty much anyone. They're just, everyone is certain, but certain in different ways and on different premises. And, you know, you just can think about when people appeal authoritatively to the science in capital letters, the science becomes, in a sense, a substitute for scripture. It is something that is supposed to end uncertainty and end conversation. This is what the science says. But of course, if you yourself are telling me what the science says, you as a human are then adding your own subjective lens. There's really no way to avoid this. The only thing that I suppose we can be 100% certain of is, I guess, something like 2 plus 2 equals 4, the fact that the mic in front of me is real and I'm not merely imagining it, although there are some philosophers who would even problematize the reality of the mic right in front of me. I'm not super familiar with those arguments, and I think they're a little bit bizarre. But, I mean, you well, can really shatty, push. It's, it's, all, it's all a part of the matrix. That's what yeah, Exactly, exactly. So um yeah but I, I think I think one yeah. of the key I think one of the key things here Shaddy is is to pay attention to the anxiety that we experience when we don't have access to that certainty and the anxiety we we experience when our neighbor uh doesn't share our faith right like can't you see the science or can't you see the Quran can't you see what what the Bible says um when you hold it with such um, perfect certainty that your interpretation of the science or your interpretation of scripture is, to use our phrase, gospel truth is, is absolute. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious, Matt, like, I mean, in your own experience with evangelicals, since you are our special lens into the evangelical soul and mind, and we're very lucky to have you <laughs> for that reason— I'm, you know, I'm curious, like, what's your experience been when you try to push on this particular point where you say, well, we as Christians are not supposed to be dogmatic. We are supposed to maybe not embrace uncertainty, but accept it as a reality, even if it's not good, even if we wish it was otherwise, we have to come to terms with that reality. Because this is something I always struggle with. It seems obvious, but clearly it's not. Yeah, so I mean, essentially what I'm trying to say here is that the the anxiety, the desire to have perfect certainty um, is a human truth. It's, it's a universal thing that everyone wrestles with. And, um, but as a Christian or as an evangelical, when I'm speaking with evangelicals, I think that um, I tend to reflect with them on the Christian doctrine of sin, um, that all human beings are disobedient in this sense, and that this disobedience or this disconnection from God um, has an impact on us, and it has a sort of blinding effect on the way that we see the world. So um, Christians ought to 
believe that there is perfect truth and certainty. There is um, perfect justice and perfect law. However, because we're sinful, um, we are never going to perfectly recognize that truth. We're never going to perfectly recognize God's will and law. Um, we will always be twisting it. We'll always be twisting the truth, and, and the truth will always be just a little bit out of our grasp. And um, so I find that usually when I get Christians reflecting on how sin impacts them, that tends to loosen their grip a little bit. And, um, and so for me, you know, this is, this is Abraham Kuyper talking about um, his own understanding of sin. He talks specifically about um, how sin impacts us and keeps us from what he calls a pure knowledge and firmness of God's laws and how these things have been lost as a result of sin. Um, yeah. yeah, and so it, it basically inspires a sense of a sense of humility, a sense of political humility. He's, Kuiper says you, that you must remember that in politics, he says, you are dealing with sinners, sinners on the throne, sinners in the political assembly hall, and sinners uh, in the university, sinners at the voting booth, and sinners at home. Once you recognize the reality of sin, you come to the frank admission, whether you like it or not, that the word of God, however perfect in itself, yet precisely because it finds only sinners who read it, can never mm, be fully yes. understood. You will recognize that it's impossible to formulate with fixed certainty and lay down for all ages and all countries the principles and ordinances of justice revealed in God's word. So a couple of follow-up questions on that. If the fact of sin intrudes upon everything, then how can you be certain about creedal requirements of the faith. So, for example, that Jesus Jesus died for our sins, for example, or something that is fundamental to Christian belief. At some point, presumably, you have to say, there is no more uncertainty. This is definitive, and it is not to be questioned, but I'm curious where that line is. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So I guess I would say that for Christians, um, creeds, uh, you know, a creedal statement and a belief in a creedal statement is actually not what saves you. Um, it's God that saves you. So yes. um, I, I am not saved by uh, ascribing to a specific creed or a specific doctrine uh, and doing so perfectly. Um, it's actually God who saves me. And so the, that said... That doesn't mean that creeds are useless. Uh, creeds are helpful in, in helping me to understand the faith and helping me to wrestle with the boundaries of the faith and where, where I shouldn't go. <laughs> um, it's sort of, uh, creeds are the sense of like a community memory of how we should live and think and walk. Um, but what I think fundamentalism does is it actually turns the creed into the thing that saves you. It turns uh, yep. right belief into the savior. So it's, it's not Jesus that saves me. It's my, my orthodoxy is the thing that saves me. And I think that we can see an analogy to this in the secular world, actually, that um, having the correct political opinions for your tribe 
you know, having that sort of ideological purity is the thing that makes you good and valuable. Um, and uh, so we see this, this uh, fundamentalism, you know, bubbling up in Christianity and Islam, but also in secular society today. And that's, I mean, I, th I think to me, that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. And this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I've been thinking about it more uh, lately. So I was, I was talking to a Catholic theologian last week as one does. And, <laughs> um, he said something really interesting. There is a lot of controversy internally within Catholicism about what makes a good Catholic um, and what are the foundational requirements to be properly Catholic. So there's a debate, for example, about if someone, if someone, um, you know, doesn't respect or doesn't like Pope Francis, how does that kind of, how does that impact their view on Catholicism writ large, since the Pope is obviously central in terms of doctrine and updating doctrine and so forth, but pre-Vatican II, post-Vatican II, what if someone doesn't accept the fact of Vatican II and wants to return to the, th the way things were before? Does that make them in some sense less Catholic, more Catholic, and so forth? But more to the point, this theologian said something really interesting that he worries that a growing number of converts to Catholicism are are doing political conversion. They're converting to Catholicism not because of religion or faith per se or belief, but because being Catholic signifies a particular kind of politics. And I found this very interesting because I had never thought about it in quite that way, but then I started seeing it more and more around me. There's actually someone, a British kickboxer named Andrew Tate, who has caused a lot of controversy. Oh man, yeah, we need a whole episode on him. But let's let's talk. Yeah, oh, about really? Him. You know about Andrew Tate? I watched the video; it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not even the. He ha he has some other very interesting inter uh, videos as well. But basically, he converted a couple weeks ago to Islam, and he was previously Christian. But when he explains why he converted. He doesn't mention basically anything about the Islamic creed. It's Prophet Muhammad doesn't really get a mention. Uh, monotheism doesn't really get a mention. But what he does emphasize is telling. He basically is like, well, Islam, Islam puts women in their place. <laughs> and I like that. And that's why I want to become Muslim. Um, well, he, he also he, says that, you know, Islam is like a muscular religion. And yes. Christianity is too soft, that Christians yeah. are too humble. Uh, yeah, like Christians are effeminate and otherworldly yeah. and soft, and they just kind of go along with things. And, you know, he's like, no, you know, Islam, uh, the, the Muslims are the ones who don't, who don't take, uh, sorry, don't take, uh, <laughs> as Christian, this is a Christian, um, yeah, it's not a Christian podcast per se, but you know, I, I want to avoid saying the word I was about to say. But regardless, <laughs> yeah, you know, Muslims don't Muslims don't mess around. You don't mess with Muslims. Yeah, and it sort of reminded me also of something that um, the Christian the Christian um, Orthodox writer Rod Dreher um, said, you know, a couple years back. I had made some reference to the fact that um, that. Uh, 
Islam. I I think I was quoting someone who called Islam the last badass religion. Yeah. And then Rod Dreher wrote something, and he had this actually in the title: Islam colon the last badass religion in quotation marks. And it was it was the same idea that there's something vigorous and virile about Islam. It takes no prisoners. You know that kind of like manliness. It's manly. Yeah. It's a it's a manly and, religion. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, some people might see that as a negative, but Rod Dreher in this post, which we can also include, he said, basically, I respect this about Muslims. If only Christians were more like that, if only Christians weren't so intent on diluting their religion and kind of accommodating themselves to the secular status quo. So these are all like really interesting examples of how being overly politicized and having certainty in your political views can then easily intrude on your understanding of God and religion, where it's no it's no longer about God. God is not central to your religious worldview. God is almost secondary. What you really want from Catholicism or what you really want from Islam is to basically own the libs or something, or to just like... Um, troll your political opponents. And that's a very odd idea. The notion that you could convert to a religion, not completely, but in part because you like trolling people who you don't particularly like, that's that's obviously a very modern idea. And I just think that we're seeing more and more examples of this sort of performative, um, yeah, it's performance art through the prism of religious conviction. Performance art. Through the prism of religious conviction. Yeah. You like that, right? It's good. Yeah. Oh, I, I just like came that. up with that. Yes. So, but I think it's, I think it actually makes sense if you understand the human desire for certainty, right? The human longing for truth. Like, I want to be a part of people who have it figured out. I don't want to be a part of mystery. I don't want to be a part of compromise. I don't want to be a part of, um, indecision. I want to be a part of an army that is heading in one direction. And, um, and religions can provide you with that. Political movements can provide you with that. Nationalism, populist politicians can provide you with that kind of certainty. Um, but I think what you're pointing to and what I'm trying to point to as well is that Islam and Christianity actually have resources for helping us take our beliefs a little bit less seriously um, and taking ourselves a little bit less seriously, um, our capacity for perfection. Um, And, you know, here's the point where I'm going to, I want to ask you to, to share um, that, that story you shared uh, one time when we were speaking, I think it was at the university of Minnesota. It was about, um, Certainty and the uh, the fatwa. Um, yes, talk talk about the fatwa and and sort of the politics of absolute certainty. Yeah, so in the classical Islamic tradition, um, it was common practice for um, a cleric or a jurist to end a fatwa, which is a religious edict, with a particular phrase. In Arabic, it's Allahu Alam, which means "and God only knows." So they would they would spend the the entirety of the fatwa trying to get as close to the truth as possible, trying to lay out their reasoned opinion. But after all of that, they would come back 
and remind themselves of of being humbled before God by saying that we can try our best as human beings to find the truth, but in the end, God only knows. And it's worth noting this was not just a rhetorical flourish at the end. It was in some ways an epistemological foundation for the Islamic legal tradition, and that's why there is really an impressive degree of legal pluralism within the Islamic tradition, you know, four, four schools of law and Sunni Islam, and different applications of different legal precepts in different geographical areas based on context. I mean, there's quite a lot in that regard. So, um, so but it's it's also, I think, really helpful. Like, even, can you imagine, like, if you're writing an article and you write the whole thing, and then you remind yourself at the end, I'm, I think I'm right, but I acknowledge the possibility that I may be wrong. Like, what if all of us as writers, commentators, pundits, we just made sure, like, what if Substack literally had a built-in thing at the end that it would always say that as a kind of positive disclaimer? I mean, that's one way of one way of thinking about right. it. What, um, what would happen to Twitter? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> every tweet had a, you know, Lord willing or God only knows. And, you know, yeah. I mean, those are those little things of, you know, inshallah, Lord willing, like my grandpa would say, you know, we're going to we're going to go on vacation this weekend, uh, you know, Lord willing. Um, yeah. And it seems to it's me out of our, our hands in the end, like we acknowledge that there is some force beyond us. And yeah. we don't know for sure that we will meet up with our friend tonight at 8 p.m. Like, God is the one who ultimately ultimately knows that. And it's just like a really helpful thing. And I'm actually glad to see. It's funny. I'm seeing how, inshallah, which means um, uh, if God wills or, or God willing in Arabic, how that's become more mainstream in American discourse. And some of you may recall when President Biden, before he became president, this was in a presidential debate, um, he said, actually, inshallah, I can't imagine, but it was like a huge thing on Twitter. Muslims were like, oh my God, we've made it. <laughs> like, this is incredible. And um, in the whole British um, prime ministerial kind of shuffling that seems to be endless, there was um, someone was sort of just like, this is just like an absolute mess. It's hopeless. And he he does like it. Uh, he does like a very persuasive and strong inshallah, and that was going around the other week too on Twitter. And I just assumed because he looked kind of brownish that he was a Muslim member of Parliament, but it turns out he was like his name was like Bob or something, and it was just, you know, and it's just like really cool that this you know it, it's obviously a joke, but it also I think speaks to the benefits of certain phrases that language can have an impact on our behavior in ways that we don't we don't fully realize um but it's a good way to live i think yeah so i mean this this taking taking yourself lightly um your opinions your certainty um all these things it it really it reminds me of this uh quote from one of my favorite authors gk chesterton who says that the angels uh the angels themselves they fly uh not because they have wings but angels fly because they take themselves lightly oh and yeah. um a lot is made um in political thought and scholarship about how religion makes us more serious and more certain and more dogmatic but it, it does seem to me to be 
um, a, an only a partial understanding of faith that um, throughout the history of our faiths, we have these resources for taking ourselves less seriously and recognizing that we fundamentally are not God. And for all of our differences uh, in theology, uh, and we'll talk about a lot of our differences uh, on this podcast, uh, this basic understanding of monotheism, that we are not God, that, that God is other, and um, that we do not control God, uh, that we um, cannot capture God in a specific statement or uh, a political movement, that God is beyond our grasp in a yeah. very important way. What that does is it seems to me to put absolute political certainty out of bounds for the Muslim or the Christian um, at, a, at a fundamental you know, spot. And that seems to me to be a resource that American democracy desperately needs. Um, yeah. This, well, let that, me, I want to ask you something. Yeah, I want to ask you something about the nature of truth and whether moral relativism is a risk of this approach. Because some people will say, well, if you sort of take a step back and you say no one knows anything for certain, then it's one or two steps from that to become a full-on moral relativist. And oftentimes right. that's a, a term that's used pejoratively. So I want to ask you about that. But I did want to share a quote from G.K. Chester, Chesterton, who you just nice. quoted from. I wasn't familiar with that one. Here's my favorite G.K. Chesterton quote. I, I like this one a lot. No, it is actually a quote from him. I was just surprised. So he says this, quote, unquote, I never discuss anything except politics and religion. There is nothing else to discuss. That's the quote, which is ideal for this podcast because that's pretty much... What we'll be talking about, um, so yeah, um, I wonder. Yeah, but you know, I think I think you could interpret that in such a way that basically, for Chesterton, everything is religion and everything is politics. Yes, and so exactly. That, yeah, that's the other the other right. Read. Yeah, uh, nothing so, is removed. Yeah, from to this that. question of moral relativism, right? So, um, does this sort of. Um, does all of this lead to a sense of moral relativism? I can't know if anything is true or not. And, you know, back to, back to Kuiper, because, you know, I, I, I offered that quote on sin. He himself very directly says, no, we are not relativists. Um, there is an absolute truth, uh, and it's all around us. Um, God's laws and limits are all around us. We, we feel them pushing on us. You know, you can take something so simple as, uh, you know, for th this need to rest every seven days, um, that that's built into us, that if we work day in and day out um, for weeks on end, we will start to break down. So um, we feel God's limits pushing in on us. Um, if we sleep with, you know, a hundred different partners, um, <laughs> uh, our lives begin to break down in some really important ways. So God's laws push in on us in a wide variety of ways. But what Kuiper would say is that um, because of our sin, we can never be perfectly certain of exactly what those laws are. So we can, we can feel them uh, and talk about them. So, 
you know, we all have this sense that killing is wrong, that, that murder is wrong. Um, but we're going to disagree about exactly the definition of murder, right? Do, um, do unborn babies, does abortion count as murder? Does, you know, euthanasia for the elderly, does that count as murder? But, and so there's, there's this deep political difference going on when we debate killing. Uh, but underneath it is this shared assumption and understanding that life matters, that there's something sacred about life um, yeah. and that it ought to be protected. And so that's the way that Kuiper escapes the two extremes. One is uh, total fundamentalist certainty and the other is total moral relativism. Um, that's how, and of course it's much more complicated than that, but that's the, the basics of, of how Kuiper wrestles with So let, let me, let me push you on this point on abortion, because that's actually one of the policy questions on, on which we, we, we don't agree. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-choice, even though I'm deeply respe respectful of people who choose otherwise. And I think it's partly because I do see myself as a pluralist that I'm very skeptical of the idea of the state interfering aggressively on the question of where do you draw the line, like cutting it down to, you know, six weeks, for example, um, and just restricting and, and making a decision to restrict something on the base on a basis of, on a basis that isn't shared by everyone. I mean, that's what reasonable people can disagree on is, um, you know, when does, you know, when is a fetus, a fetus, so on and so forth. So, you know, on abortion, since I know that you, you do feel strongly about it, um, how do you, if someone, well, I guess I'll just ask you, like if, some, if someone asks you or if I ask you, well, what if you're wrong about your view on abortion? Because the, the general underlying principle is true. It's about the importance of life, and that is absolute. But when it comes to the practical implications of that, in everyday politics, in a diverse society where people don't share the same starting premises about what constitutes life, is it possible that from a Christian perspective, a quote-unquote pro-choice view might actually be the one that is more in line with God's will? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so absolutely, um, I could be wrong about this and many other issues. Um, however, I think that it's precisely because either one of us could be wrong about this issue that we should actually err on the side of pro-life. And the reason is because if, if I'm wrong, then, um, you know, bad things happen. But if you're wrong, a lot of babies die, right? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I mean, this is, I mean, back in when, um, they were fighting about slavery, um, and people were discussing whether or not, you know, African-Americans were human and did they count as human? Uh, one of the arguments that was made was we should err on the side of hospitality to who counts as human. Um, so when it comes to old people, disabled people, the unborn, uh, slaves, whatever we're talking about, we should we should err on the side of protection for life rather than destruction of life. And so if you're going to be wrong, 
<laughs> you should you should uh, be wrong on the side of of hosp political hospitality, and um, so that that's that's one thing I'll say. I think the other thing I will say is that um, when I engage in discussions about um, about abortion, there is sort of a reckoning. Um, first of all, that I am a man, and second of all, that I have never myself been in the position where I have you know, I was wrestling or my wife and I were wrestling with an unwanted pregnancy or a difficult pregnancy or something like that. But also I need to reckon with the fact that I myself and some, I'm sinful. So, um, because I'm sinful, I will, um, be prone to use political speech to make myself look better, to make myself, mm. um, feel better. Um, in public spaces. And so I always have to be mindful of how I'm behaving in a discussion about, about abortion. Um, and so that, that lack of certainty is, is important. Okay, so I'm intrigued by this argument because I haven't heard it phrased precisely that way before, that if there is a tension, when in doubt, err on the side of life and hospitality towards life. But there is a complicating factor because I think that general principle is great, and most people would be totally fine with it in theory. But in this particular case, that principle comes into conflict with consider considerations around individual rights and bodily autonomy. So if, if, a, if a particular woman didn't have to, quote-unquote, pay the price for that and do something against her will— then, of course, we would err on the side of life. But the fact that someone else's life, the woman's life, comes into direct consideration here. And so to protect one life requires infringing upon another. I think that's where the conflict comes about. And that's where you have to make a, a set of value judgments. Yeah. So that yeah. just to complicate I, that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and here... Um... <laughs> one last Kuiper thing. Uh, so oh, you love Kuiper. <laughs> <laughs> so he says that, I mean, essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about abortion mm -hmm. is uh, the government invading uh, the holy space of the family. So the, and the holy autonomy of the woman and her body. So uh, when, um, when pro-choice activists talk about, a woman's body being sacred. Um, I completely agree with that, that women are made in the image of God and they are empowered by God to be the stewards of their bodies. And so if the government ever tells a woman what to do with her body, uh, that's a sad day. So there should be no cheering. Yep. Um, there should be no cheering or delight in having the government you know, invade that special sacred place. And so I think that also informs the way in which I think about abortion in that I don't think of it as a, a delightful crusade, um, but an unhappy, um, difficult um, wrestling. And that's uh, anyways, I'm not fully equipped on this issue. This isn't, this isn't my main thing, but no, no, of course uh, not. <laughs> maybe we can, we can have a full out, abortion discussion sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, let's, uh, what I do want to get back to is the question of whether there is one truth or multiple truths simultaneously. 
Oh, and boy. maybe I'll offer a little taste from an Islamic perspective. And this is something that I struggle with because there isn't actually a definitive answer Islamically. There are two prophetic traditions. One of them goes more or less like this, that um, uh, if, a, if, a, if a religious judge is striving for the truth and they come to the right conclusion or the correct conclusion, they get two bounties from God. If a religious judge strives for the truth but then comes to the incorrect position and falls short of the truth, they still get rewarded, but with one bounty, not two. So everyone sort of wins, but there is one that's a little bit better than the other. And this demonstrates that in the end, even if we don't have direct access to it, there is an objective truth somewhere out there. We have no way of knowing about it in this life, in this moment, but it still exists, and God is aware of that truth, obviously, right? Then there's a second prophetic tradition, which seems to be, you know, maybe perhaps slightly in tension with that one, and it's it's just a simple tradition that says every mushtahid is correct. A mushtahid is is an interpreter of um, of of theology or law who is using their own reasoning and interpretation. Um, so, what does it mean that every mushtahid is correct? Well. Some some scholars have interpreted this to mean that there is no difference in reward, that it's the very striving for truth that itself is the straight path. There isn't any objective that you're trying to go to. God doesn't necessarily have a preference between two positions Islamically, within reason, of course, as long as the individual in question is pursuing the truth faithfully, and they are trying their best to ascertain God's will. That in the end, God will say, okay, I have these two people, they were loyal devotees, they were trying to do the right thing, and and both of them were right, and both of them did reach the truth. So, um, and I'll just quote something from the... Uh, the Muslim American scholar Khaled Abul Fadl, who you know, who's a major influence on me. I was just rereading um, parts of his book, speaking God's name, earlier today. So he says this. This is his interpretation of this debate. He says that some jurists, quote unquote, even argued that the reason for the search is the search, and not necessarily to locate the straight path at all. In other words, the search is the straight path. So similar to what I said earlier, but that just, you know, more eloquently, I think that really gets at an important point. And I'm intrigued by this because I think that most people, if you push them, secular or religious, they would basically say that in the end, there is a truth. In the end, there is a better answer. And there is something called objective reason or rationality or one thing is better one thing is right and another is wrong ultimately but what if we entertain the possibility that there actually isn't a particular truth on a contested question what if it just so happens and here I'm you know I'm just speculating here I haven't actually thought this through but on abortion what if um you know what if god what if god came in the end, and he's kind of um, trying to judge between these different claims on on abortion that people made during their lives. 
And let's say you have two Muslims and they disagree on where to draw the line in terms of viability or conception or whatever it might be. And one says, one says um, 12 weeks and the other says 20 weeks, for example. What if there isn't actually one that is objectively better than the other? What if, isn't it possible? Can we imagine a scenario where God in his mystery and majesty simply says 20 weeks and 12 weeks are equally valid? I'm just curious. I actually don't know what, what you would say to that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, going back to the quote that I shared earlier, we do not have access to, um, as Christians, Kuiper argues that we don't have access to a perfect law that is perfectly um, applicable in every time and place um, because of our sin, but also because of our finitude. And so there's always this prudential wrestling with um, how do I honor God's truth today in 2022 America on the issue of abortion. And that looks different than if I was in France in 1970 or Japan in 1750. Um, that uh, seeking life, uh, seeking to protect life looks different in these different spaces. And so that means that you, you learn from history, you learn from scripture, uh, but you also understand that you need to wrestle with that today. That, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say, you know, s just along the lines of what you were wrestling with there was Jesus talks about needing to love God with our mind, with our whole mind. So, and by this, he means that, um, I think similar to what you were talking about, we want, we want to think well as Christians, that thinking well and uh, wrestling with these questions in a thoughtful way um, is actually a way of serving God. Um, that said, um, thinking well is not a way to earn God's love. Uh, you know, we don't get extra bonus points for thinking well, um, but we try to think well um, out of gratitude for what God has done for us. So um, I want to think well about this issue of abortion and politics um, because I think that um, it delights God to see me wrestling uh, with the question and wrestling with you about um, the best way to respond on these issues yeah. uh, of abortion. So he, he delights in my struggle to, to answer you well. Um, and to, he also delights in me treating you well when we're talking about yeah. this issue of abortion. Right. Um, so, uh, I have to answer you with, not just with, with truth, but also with grace and mercy. Um, and yeah, I can't put those things, uh, in opposition to one another, but, I, I need to respond to you with both that, that grace and mercy and, uh, preach. Yeah. You like that? <laughs> um, you know, I, I do want to bring up Abraham Kuyper and just dwell on him for a moment as we wrap up here, because I think a lot of our, well, to be fair, some of them might be familiar with Abraham Kuyper because I think that both you and I have played a role in, 
repopularizing Kuiper for a new, I don't want to like, I, you know, I don't want to put too much on us and say that we're the ones who did this, but we've played a role among, along with other people. I think there's just a real interest in Kuiper's insights, particularly now, because Kuiper has important things to say about uh, polarization and how to live with deep difference. And in his own native Netherlands, that was for, you know foremost on his mind because the Netherlands was afflicted. Well, maybe afflicted isn't the right word because... Um, it wasn't entirely negative, but you had these different communities that formed different pillars in society. And this is often known as pillarization, where you had socialists, Catholics, Calvinists, uh, and, you know, and, so, and liberals in their different communities, and they were basically self-regulating and somewhat autonomous and, and so forth. And that, that is one way to approach deep difference. But I'm someone who has you know, spent more and more time thinking about Kuiper, reading Kuiper, and you, Matt, were my first entry point into Kuiper. And, you know, if people are looking for what can really be gained by having a conversation across religious or cultural lines, this is a really good example. If I didn't know evangelicals and I didn't spend time with them, I wouldn't have known Kuiper, and Kuiper in turn wouldn't have changed me. Because I see, like, when I look back at the things that I write that have nothing to do ostensibly with Kuiper, I see Kuiper's influence on me. And that's a great thing to see. And, you know, I've joked sometimes that I'm the only, as far as I know, I'm the only openly Muslim Kuiperian in America today. Maybe there's another one, but I just don't know who he, who he or she is. But... um yeah, so Kuiper, you know, um, did we say what, what time period he was in? 19th century, but in the early 20th century, he was also briefly the prime minister of Netherlands. So he's a very interesting individual because it's rare to have a theologian, and particularly a Calvinist theologian, also be the head of government. Yeah, and yeah. So in I mean, that there's sense, so many fascinating... he's able to play... Yes, yeah, so many fascinating things about him, but really the core, I think, of what, what grabs you and I is that um, Kuiper was completely unapologetic about being uh, dedicated to his faith tradition. He was 100% in on his faith tradition. And yet, uh, his faith tradition um, caused him to get involved in a political campaign that created generous space for lots of other faiths that he really disagreed with. So today in the Netherlands, um, if you want to, you can start uh, a Muslim school, a Buddhist school, you can start a Marxist school, um, and you can do these things and actually receive government funding to start your religious or ideological school, um, precisely because Abraham Kuyper argued that the state does not have the right to pick winners and losers when it comes to religions and ideologies. So Kuyper wanted uh, a religious marketplace, a, an ideological marketplace where different ideas and beliefs could compete uh, for the public square. Um, and he did that not because he was a relativist. Uh, he actually did that because he really did believe in 
um, the Christian command to love your neighbor, that I, I have to give, you know, Muslims and Buddhists and atheists the right to have their own school, to have their own, um, to have their own organizations and political parties. And I can't use the government to create a sort of hierarchy where I get special benefits from the government, but they don't. And so even today, you know, little, little Dutch boys and girls can go to school, you know, according to their specific belief systems, um, because of Abraham Kuyper. And that's, that's that interesting thing of not being a relativist, um, being a pluralist. Uh, and that's really that, that core difference. Could you say more about the theological premise that he used to get to that conclusion? I especially am thinking here about like the idea of an atheist school, because I feel like a lot of Christians might be open to um, faith-oriented schools, you know, Jewish, Muslim, and so forth. But if it if it's about something that Christians see as not just incorrect but also anti-God or disavowing God. That's a bigger challenge, I think, for religious folks. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how did, how did Kuiper extend that to non, you know, non-believers? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot behind it, but um, I think that what, <clears throat> what he'd say is ultimately that God is in charge. Um, God is sovereign over what happens. So the argument that, you know, we Christians can't allow Muslims and atheists and socialists to organize because if we allow them to organize, then they might take this country in a bad direction. Um, so there's a fear that the country could go in a bad direction. And Kuiper says, yes, that's absolutely possible. However, God is in control and we are not. Uh, God is on the throne and we are not. And so if we take the throne, uh, we are being disrespectful of God's sovereignty. And furthermore, if we are going to win, right? And by winning, that would be, you know, more people becoming Christians. Uh, he said, if we're going to win, I want to win in a fair fight. Uh, I don't want to win by cheating, by using the government to twist people's arms into the Christian faith. Um, because then he says, you know, our faith will be unhealthy. Um, and I think you can kind of look at Europe, uh, you know, after centuries of, of providing, you know, special advantages to the Christian faith, and you can see how unhealthy that's, that's made the Christian church throughout Europe. So this makes me just hearing this, and I think we'll we'll have to save this for another episode. I would be intrigued to talk to, I don't want to say a non-pluralist, but let's say an evangelical or a Catholic non-pluralist who would take issue with what you just said there. And they wouldn't be particularly concerned about playing fair and square. They would see a role for the government and promoting a particular conception of the common good. Because if we do know the truth, if we have a sense of what the common good entails, why shouldn't we do something about it? And they might say that, Matthew, your argument is one that leads us down the path of political quietism and passivity, that 
we just kind of throw up our hands and say, God is on the throne, God is sovereign. Um, but we will, we will explore that. Uh, that'll be really interesting, I think. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Matt, do you want to close us up with some words of wisdom since you were in <laughs> preacher mode? <laughs> no wisdom today, but I, I, well, let's just, I mean, let's wrap this up with our focus, right? It was uncertainty and doubt. And ultimately, I think what we've, what we've explored here is um, that both Islam and Christianity not only provide us with some, some helpful truths, but they actually help us to doubt ourselves and not take ourselves so seriously. So when we engage in a political debate, we have that sort of, you know, inshallah, or that, you know, God only knows sort of haunting us uh, and reminding us before we send that tweet, you know, or post on Facebook of whatever our political opinion is, we reckon with the fact that not only are we not God, um, but we, we don't control God. We don't, we can't capture God. And so any of our political opinions that we hold, we have to hold those things lightly. And so ironically, I think that if I could sum up our argument, and I don't know how you feel about this, is that um, Islam and Christianity help us to doubt and, and doubt in very important ways that can be helpful to a more healthy democracy. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Totally. That sums it up quite well in like one sentence. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, look, there's a practical component to all this. And, you know, not not to be an activist about it or, or a preacher per se. But I do think that if every single person who's listening to this podcast and who's listening carefully goes back to their own life and their own political and religious engagements and tries to operationalize doubt and to think about how to introduce doubt more consciously into their lives while staying within their religious tradition, of course. There's no tension. There shouldn't be a tension. People shouldn't see it as the more I feel doubt, the less Christian I am, or the more I feel doubt, the less Muslim I am. No, they can, they can and perhaps even should go together. And um, just by talking to you about this, um, I'm going to be thinking about it probably for the rest of the day at least. <laughs> so there's that. Awesome. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening to Zealots at the Gate. Um, do you like what you've heard? Well, check out our podcast, Intellectual Seedbed at Comment Magazine, where you'll find illuminating essays on politics, culture, and faith, some even written by your fair hosts. We want to hear from you. You can connect with us on Twitter at Shadi Hamid. That's me, S-H-A-D-I-H-A-M-I-D. And Matthew Kamink, who has a complicated Dutch name, but that's Matthew, K-A-E-M-I-N-G-K. Wow, that is really difficult. Um, sorry, Matt. <laughs> and you can also write to us at zealots at comment.org and, and or use the hashtag zealotspod. And we'll keep an eye on those and try to respond when we can. Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comment Magazine. It's produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Shadi Hamid. And I'm Matthew Kaming. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.